0: Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I'm joined again by a PhD historian and managing editor of The Saints Project, Steve Harper. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Ben. And we're joined by our good friend, again, Sarah Iring. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. Today we have a chapter to talk about, Chapter 33. 33, oh O God, Where Art Thou? We're going to spend some time with the Prophet Joseph and others in Liberty Jail. We have some, some interesting passages to to get through in this chapter of our history. Steve, can we start out with why is Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail? Can you remind our listeners why
1: he's there? And- yeah, you bet. There are sort of a variety of answers to the question. The simplest way to answer it is uh, people hate him. Powerful people hate him. That's why he's in jail. The legal answer to the question is because the— powerful people who want him under their thumb have found a legal way to get and hold him in jail. Unlike today, in Joseph Smith's time, it wasn't common for prisoners to be held in jail for a long time. Unless you're being held on some capital charge, something they can execute you for, they typically let you go and you're supposed to show up at the next term of the circuit court. You enter recognizance. You answer the charge, and you say, fine, I'll show up either in the spring or the fall when the circuit court meets again. But here they have worked really hard to find a dubious uh, grounds for charging Joseph Smith with treason. Yeah, tr- t- help us understand that. I, I thought... How do you commit treason against a state? I I don't understand that. Right. One of the accounts we have uh, comes from Parley Pratt, and he's listening to this, what we would today call a preliminary hearing before Judge Austin King. Joseph is uh, the subject of the hearing, and the purpose of it is to see whether they can find grounds to charge him with something that they can hold him on. So they're checking it all out, and somebody testifies that they heard Joseph Smith say that the prophecy of Daniel, that the kingdom of God will roll forward like a stone cut out of a yeah, mountain without hands. And we've fill heard the that earth. a lot
0: in our primary
1: lessons, right? Yeah, Definitely. And, and it will crush all nations, right? It will consume fill the earth, the earth yeah, right. right? So um, the judge says to the court clerk after hearing this testimony write that down. That's a strong point for treason. And uh, one of the lawyers for Joseph Smith says, Judge, then you had better make the Bible treason. You can see from this that they're hunting for some charge that they can use to hold him. This is actually what happens several years later in Carthage as well. They they use the treason charge. Absolutely. So it's not that Joseph committed treason. It's that they need to find some legal justification for holding him so that they can compel him and the rest of the saints to do what they want them to do. Can you remind us, so a minute ago you
0: you mentioned the circuit court in the spring and the fall. Mm-hmm. Now, for us today in our w- current world, we're, we're used to be like, hey, you get arrested, you're going to see a judge like tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. Like In that time, can you just remind us, like, how did this legal system work? What's a, what's a circuit court and a, a circuit, they call them circuit riders, the judge would actually ride between different circuits, I guess, help us understand that a little
1: yeah really in some ways the whole court would move around the state Um, maybe the most famous circuit uh, lawyer in American history is Abe Lincoln who's active in the next state over at about this same time but you know literally the judge and all the lawyers would move around the state and they'd complete these circuits typically uh, in the spring and in the fall the court would sit So if you have a charge, as Joseph does, of treason, and uh, that charge is heard in November of 1838, and they hold him on that charge, they find grounds to hold him on that charge, that means he's going to sit in that jail till April. It's like an automatic... On Monopoly board, you're just stuck in jail. (laughs) There is no get out of jail card for six months, basically. (laughs) That's exactly right. You're just going to rot. And they did everything they could in the meantime. They appealed here and appealed there, and nobody would grant their appeals. Everybody who had any power or say over it conspired in some way or other to keep them in jail until April.
2: So speaking of power, actually, Joseph said something about uh, those who are in power, what was that that he that he declared about uh, uh, even righteous men who, who gain power?
1: He's just had the hardest year of his life, and it's getting harder. And while he's in the jail, he reflects on it and talks about that when we get a little power or authority, as we suppose, we almost always exercise it unrighteously. Mm. And he contrasts that with priesthood power, which cannot he says, be exercised unrighteously.
2: Oh, that's interesting.
1: It is indeed. It's one of the most fascinating things he ever revealed. You know, we sometimes say absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's not true because the only beings in the universe who have absolute power don't exercise it arbitrarily or unrighteously. The truth is that just about all men, as soon as they get a little authority or a little power, abuse it and never, therefore, gain the real power that they could. Uh, We've learned this lesson by sad experience, that we exercise power badly and therefore lose it, and therefore no power can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood except by the Christ-like attributes, the Christ-like way Christ exercises power.
2: That's a great point.
1: It is a most fascinating Lesson that Joseph learns um, when he is in some ways the most powerless in his life and also in some ways the most powerful. Remember, it hasn't been very long since the ministering angels bestowed on him the priesthood keys that can seal families, uh, gather Israel, etc. So he has all the power he's going to have from God and yet he's stuck in this dungeon he can't even get out. He can't help his people. He feels utterly powerless. Steve, along those lines,
0: um, let's listen to just a little clip here from the book that talks about this moment of, of feeling powerless.
3: Why did a loving Heavenly Father allow so many innocent men, women, and children to suffer while those who drove them from their homes stole their lands and committed unspeakable violence against them went free and unpunished? How could he let his faithful servants wallow in a hellish prison far from their loved ones? What purpose did it serve to abandon the saints at the very time they needed him the most? O God, where art thou? Joseph cried out. How long shall thy hand be stayed?
0: Steve, I, I remember you were here for our first podcast episode for saints, and we talked about this moment of the volcano going off and the problem of evil, of bad things happening
1: to good people. This is Joseph's moment where he, he's there. This is the low point in his life. It's the low point in the book. In storytelling, um, if it's a good story, the protagonist will come to a place where the bad guys have closed in and where all is lost. And this is the all is lost moment for the Latter-day Saints. In the previous chapter, saints in Far West and at Hans Mill have been brutalized. Saints have been massacred. Amanda Barnes-Smith's family has been decimated. And theologians work hard to find solutions to the problem of evil But one of the fascinating things about the scriptures is that nowhere in the scriptures does God offer an elaborate theology that resolves it. The book of Job sets the problem forth, and in the end, Job is just invited to trust God. There's not a thorough answer. There's not a complete explanation on God's part. It feels a little unsatisfying, honestly, right? Like, I I want a nice,
0: clean answer. Right. And in that... Passage we just listened to. It, I mean, it feels like Joseph is saying
1: that. Like I, he is. Where, where are you? Right. What's the answer? At least he would like a time. Right. Could I? Could you tell me how long it's going to be before you rain hell fire down on these people <laughs> who have put me and my family and the saints in this terrible predicament? He's really upset. He's frustrated with the way things have gone. He's frustrated with former fellow servants who've turned against him. Uh, who've put him in that, in that situation and who've made it possible for the uh, Missourians to drive the saints from the state. That just had to hurt. I mean, it's terrible. William W. Phelps, right, has is, is testified against
0: him. Thomas Orson Marsh. and Hyde. And these, right. these guys are his, his closest associates, yeah. his closest friends, right. and their testimony is
1: used to throw him in this cell. right. You can tell that the Lord is, is on Joseph's side about this as well. The Lord's not as emotional about it in the revelations, but he says something very interesting. He says to Joseph, your friends stand by you. And if you think about that, that implicates these people like Marsh and Hyde and other and Phelps. Uh, the Lord disqualifies them, at least for the time being, as Joseph's friends. His friends are the ones like Hiram, who's down in that pit with him. Uh, Emma, Mary, who've come uh, to visit their husbands. So his friends stand by him, and he's not yet as Job. Things aren't yet as bad. So the Lord never gives a full explanation. He just says, Joseph, it could be worse. And notice, especially, he says, it's a small moment. So Joseph thinks, this is interminably long. I cannot believe how long I've been down in this hole, and my people have had to suffer. And the Lord says, by contrast, ah, it's a small moment, and it has purpose. If you endure it well, God will exalt you on high. So I think the purposes of God are accomplished in part by him not explaining in complete detail the solution to the problem of why awful, terrible things happen. Awful, terrible things happen. He acknowledges that. He grants it. And he also promises comfort, strength, ultimate uh, solutions and resolutions. But in the moment, there's often no answer to the terrible problems that Amanda Barnes Smith faces. Notice in the chapter previous to this one, in the most awful situation imaginable, God doesn't take away all her problems, but he does help her heal her son and he brings her peace. And that doesn't, you know, her husband is still dead. Her other son is still brutally murdered. And she has been assaulted in a most severe manner. But uh, she has evidence from God that he has not forsaken her. And that's about the best we can do in our mortal condition is notice that God has not forsaken us even when things are as bad as we can possibly imagine them being. Let's
0: um, listen to a little clip here from the book as Joseph receives an answer from the Lord about his suffering and a, a bit of peace and comfort.
3: My son, peace be unto thy soul, the Lord responded. Thine adversity and thine afflictions shall be but a small moment, and then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes." the Lord assured Joseph that he was not forgotten. If the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee, the Lord told Joseph, Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience, and shall be for thy good. Thy days are known, and thy years shall not be numbered less, the Lord assured him. Therefore, fear not what man can do for God shall be with you forever and ever.
1: That's what theologians call theodicy. That's a resolution to the problem of evil. In fact, that is the Mormon one right there. Uh, If you pay attention in general conferences, you'll notice that it's almost always evoked a time or two in every general conference. Uh, That is, somebody will speak on what do we do when in times of diversity and hardship and why do these things happen and how do we respond? That Latter-day Saint way, that restored gospel way of understanding the purpose and value of adversity and suffering came to Joseph Smith in the lowest point of his life. And it also functions in Saints Volume 1 as this, this terrible time of of the lowest point in the book, not just for Joseph, but for all the saints, it is the dark night of the soul before the revelation makes sense of it and opens a new light that we've used ever since to see ourselves through the dark nights that we have sarah i'm I'm interested to know how this strikes you uh, this this chapter and the ones that preceded is pretty dark
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I was hesitant to say this is my favorite chapter because I worried people <laughs> might might misunderstand what I mean but how do they strike you what do you think of them?
2: Well I That's have to cool. say I was just thinking that this might be my favorite podcast that we've that we've uh, I've been part of because these experiences not only were true but that there, there's truth in what you're saying that Heavenly Father and the Savior are with us even and especially in our darkest moments and so this is a really special story for me to read um, because this, comforts me in the you know relatively small things i may be going through now but also gives me some hope that when there are even lower points in in my future as there may be as as life just brings that i can turn to him and it's interesting that i think it's interesting that heavenly father or the savior references job and says look you're not like job yet <laughs> there's somebody else who's gone through something even more um and and I I think that that's such a wonderful parallel and and opportunity and and bit of perspective that we can say, all right, other people have gone through some things. I think that's, I mean, I've said it before in a podcast, I'm sure, but I think that's one of the benefits of reading this narrative is realizing, oh, okay, I'm not alone in this experience, Uh, whatever it may be, whether it's a joyful one or a challenging one or a a terrible one, uh, somebody's gone before and Heavenly Father was with that person. I'm pretty sure he's with me too. And so I, I guess I agree. This is one of my favorite chapters to be discussing.
1: I'm thrilled to hear that. It makes me confident that the book is doing the work it's designed to do, which is not just to inform about facts that happened in the past. It's to um, teach us what God does for his children, right? How he loves his children, even in the darkest possible times. Definitely. As you mentioned that, Steve,
0: I can't help but think how many have read these passages, may not have had all the context that we've talked about today, but have still heard in their own life, know thou my son or daughter. All these things shall be thy experience. Yeah, or daughter. And thy days are known, thy years will not be numbered less. I mean, those words have spoken peace to me and I'm sure they have to, to many. And how cool is it that saints is yet
1: another way for them to discover this revelation from, from the Lord. I agree with that. You know, it's common throughout history for people to forsake God when things get terrible for them. But it's also common for people to turn to God when things get hard. The problem of evil says if God loves us and he has enough power to spare us from suffering, why in the world do we suffer? And it's based on an assumption that God's love is best manifest by sparing us from any trouble or any suffering. Preventing us from feeling any yeah. pain. That's not a safe assumption, right? That might not be what God is up to. Instead, based on the, these lessons from the past and the revelations, it seems to me that William Clayton captured what God is up to really well in the hymn, Come, Come, Ye Saints, when it, in that line when it says, grace shall be as your day. So notice that, that as low as things got for Amanda Barnes-Smith, and I don't know how they can get lower than that, that God's grace was sufficient for her day. He gave her everything she needed to make it through that unbelievably dark night of her soul. And that's exactly true for Joseph Smith, too, in the jail and for all the saints. And we can trust that it will be true for us as well. Grace shall be as our day. And that grace comes from from the Savior.
2: I was interested to um, read as well about the revelation that Heber C. Kimball received about his family. Um, do you have any more details on that?
1: All the details we know about it, we put into the book. Oh, good, good. (laughs) But it is a great story, isn't it?
2: It is. So I guess in response to his questions about his suffering and his family's suffering, there's this quote from the book. Can I read it? You've got it. It says, "'The Lord told him not to worry about his family. I will feed them and clothe them and make them unto friends,' he promised. "'Peace shall rest upon them forever. If thou wilt be a faithful and go forth and preach my gospel to the nations of the earth.'" Um, and it says also that when Heber finished writing, his heart, heart and mind were calm, which I love. He found some peace in that answer.
1: I love that story too, Sarah. You can tell why we, why we wanted to put it in there, right? It, totally. Uh, our lives hinge on dilemmas. Great stories also hinge on dilemmas. Here Heber has a dilemma. Do I leave my family hungry and uh, destitute, yeah. and you know, and potentially in great danger, and do I go back into the state of Missouri to obey the Lord's command to the twelve apostles and put my life in great danger, and therefore maybe risk my family's future? You know, as their provider, or protector, he's got a terrible dilemma, and he is willing to do anything the Lord asks him to do, but he wants to know, you know, for sure that the Lord is is asking and also what the Lord is going to do for his family. And he seeks and receives this wonderful, reassuring revelation that his family will be blessed and protected. They'll have friends, they'll have all they need. And that is dependent on if Heber fulfills his responsibility to mm-hmm. preach the gospel.
2: I love that part where he says, and, and make unto them friends so that they'll have other people to support them. And I think that that's, such a cool part of the gospel is that it's not only this idea that we've been talking about that you won't be alone because you'll have the Savior and Heavenly Father and the Holy Ghost with you, but also we have each other, you know, we have friends, and that is such a comfort and uh, also kind of gives uh, me at least a feeling of responsibility. You know, if if Heavenly Father needs me to be a friend to somebody, I better be ready.
1: You know, Violet Kimball, Heber's wife, becomes a great woman, largely because of the very hard things she does. And Heber becomes a great man because of the hard things she does. So imagine if God had said, I'm going to take away these hard things Mm -hmm. out of your life. I don't want you to have any trouble because I love you. So we can see here that God doesn't take away our trouble because he loves us. And I think we could say because he loves us, he's given us a plan for our happiness that includes a lot of trouble, but he makes us equal Uh, to the trouble and compensates us for our losses. You mentioned uh, a moment ago that Heber and the other apostles had
0: gone back into Missouri, and I'll just invite our listeners to read the chapter because this is actually a pretty exciting moment. It's not like they run across the border. It's a seven-day trip. They are not going to allow others to dictate them fulfilling Joseph's revelation, the the prophecy that from that point they would begin their missions. It's incredible. You got to read that part of the story. It's amazing. But before we run out of time in today's episode, let's kind of fast forward just a little bit to the moment when Joseph is being transported. They've asked for a change of venue. They're moving to another court and Joseph escapes uh, and I, I just did that in air quotes for our listeners. Can, can you tell us what kind of
1: escape was this? Well, the sheriff who has been charged with uh, transporting them to the other county uh, essentially told the guards that were with him. There was a group of, of a few of them. He, he made sure they understood that we're going to let these guys go. So a couple of days into it, um, the sheriff tells Joseph and the others... Uh, We're going to take a drink of Mm -hmm. grog. We're going to get drunk, and you guys can do whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) And at about the same time, Joseph had arranged with one of the guards apparently to buy a couple of horses, and um, those horses help Joseph Mm -hmm. and the others to get safely out of Missouri while their guards are inebriated and not paying attention. The sheriff actually paid a dear price for that later on. He had turned friendly uh, to Joseph and was willing to let him go. I think it's a fascinating little detail about these horses
0: and the fact that later on, the man who gave the horses to Joseph shows up in Nauvoo and essentially receives payment. They had a, what appears to be, anyway, a legal agreement saying, I'm going to take the horses, but you can come collect funds for them
1: later. That's what the document suggests that Joseph buys a couple of horses on trust. And the fellow, John Brassfield, comes a few years later to Nauvoo and and collects. It's it's incredible.
0: Let's listen to one more little clip here from the book about a a visitor showing up um, on the banks of the Mississippi.
3: Around this time, a ferry landed at Quincy, and several rough-looking passengers came ashore. One of them... A pale, thin man wore a wide-brimmed hat and a blue jacket with an upturned collar that concealed his unshaven face. His ragged trousers were tucked into worn-out boots. Dimick Huntington, a former sheriff among the saints in Far West, watched the unkempt stranger climb up the bank. Something familiar about the man's face and the way he carried himself caught Dimick's attention, but he could not say why until he got a better look. Is it you, Brother Joseph? he exclaimed. Joseph raised his hands to quiet his friend. Hush, he said cautiously. Where is my family?
1: That's one of my favorite passages in the whole book. That comes from Dimmock, That's his description. So the v- vivid details, right, the color of Joseph's clothes and the raggedness of his boots and his unshaven face, that all comes to us from Dimmock Huntington, who was a dear friend uh of joseph's a confidant somebody joseph knew he could trust and emma had sent Dimick to the boat landing for days you know to, ch- to watch check for him and see and so there he is uh waiting to see if joseph will come around sometime and lo and behold he does and the first thing joseph wants is to go see his family he says take me as quickly as you can to see my family so they ride through town and out to the cleveland's house where uh, emma and the children are staying and the chapter ends should i give away the ending sure our our listeners have already read it (laughs) chapter ends with uh, joseph riding up on his horse and emma seeing him and meeting each other halfway across the yard as they embrace for the first time in several months and it's a very touching scene um I don't think we can fathom, I can't. I can't fathom what each of them had suffered for their faith. And uh, I don't mean to preach to them about the problem of suffering. But in the meantime, they learned that suffering is not evidence that God hates us. Uh, Rather, God will see us through our suffering, whatever it may be. And this is one of the lessons of this wonderful chapter in the whole book.
0: Well, thank you so much, Steve Harper, for being here with us today. And, and thank you also, Sarah, for joining us. To our listeners out there, I would just encourage you to, to visit saints.lds.org or the Gospel Library in the history section, where you can read about many of the topics we talked about today, uh, about Liberty Jail and um, others under the church history Topics section. Check out the latest videos. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days.